Was it good? Was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway anew on Backstage Babble. Hi, everyone. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Today, I'm honored to be joined by Ken Bloom and Richard Carlin, authors of the new book, Yubi Blake, Rags, Rhythm, and Race. To start off, do you want to tell us a little bit about who Yubi Blake was? Okay. <laughs> well, Yubi Blake was a really a, a unique figure in American popular music because uh, he was so long-lived that he really spanned a number of eras of popular music. He's best known, of course, for the play Shuffle Along, the musical play Shuffle Along, which premiered in 1921, which is just about 99 years ago. It was said to be the first all-Black written, produced, and performed play on Broadway in New York. Uh, some might argue that there were earlier plays, uh, but nonetheless, it was the first major hit. It did a lot to introduce um, syncopated music and dance to the Broadway stage. Yubi uh, began his life as a pianist. He, at, even as a teenager, he was playing in local houses of ill repute as well as local clubs and functions. Uh, he was a master of the ragtime style, but someone who fell in love with show music um, through the unlikely fact that he heard uh, music by Leslie Stewart, who was a British composer uh, famous for Floradora, which was a major hit at the turn of the century, a very sentimental show uh, that also thankfully featured some scantily clad Koreans. And so that made it even more popular. And um, then UB partnered up with a lyricist named Noble Sissel. The two were successful on white vaudeville, which was quite unusual for a African-American act at that time. In turn, they met two other black vaudevillians. Uh, Ken, fill in the names. <laughs> uh, they, they met Miller and Lyles, of course. Okay. Thanks, Ken. Would you speak up? Florinae Miller and Aubrey Lyles. You're uh, doing so well. And uh, they, they decided to create this play that was their dream to get on Broadway. And, uh, but Yubi's life didn't end at that point. He, he had a long, distinguished life writing. He wrote further shows. He um, went through a period sort of in the wilderness during the Depression when African-American composers and performers had it very difficult and eventually was rediscovered and became a major star in his 90s and uh, thankfully had an incredible memory and so he was able to talk about the changes in popular music that occurred through his lifetime. So that's a little bit about it. The great thing about him also was that at an advanced age, he started uh, learning the Schillinger method of writing music. So all through his life, he was interested in moving on. For those of us in musical theater, you know, a lot of people like um, Vincent Humans and well, Frimmel going further back and Herbert really stuck to their era. 
and they didn't, their music didn't progress as much. But Yubi did try to progress, and in the 40s, he was writing 40s-style music for his shows, and, and not as much in the 50s, because rock and roll started to come in. But that's when he was studying classical music, and ragtime always had a classical basis. So it was a natural transition for him. He had a tremendous ear. Uh, um, if you listen to his interviews, he will imitate the voice or vocal style of long gone figures like Burt Williams. It's quite amazing. And also for a, for a guy who was interviewed mostly when he was in his late 80s and early 90s, his memory is and most of what we were able to check panned out. Usually when you interview somebody, they get the dates wrong or they confuse who was there or they make them the, the star of the story uh, sometimes. But Yubi was very, very, he knew that African-American musical theater was underrepresented in the standard histories. And he was very anxious to correct the record, and, but accurately. So one of his favorite catchphrases in his interviews was, now I'm telling you the truth. He would say that very often. And, and he really, he did his best. Um, and that, of course, was an incredible help to us in, in writing this book. Right, and later on, he became a mentor to young pianists who are still going strong, who he taught. So he believed in passing it on. He, it seems like, and Richard can correct me, he didn't have the ego of a lot of famous composers, lyricists, writers. He, was, he wanted to collaborate with all different kinds of people. He wanted to share his knowledge with other people. And I, in writing the book, I didn't get the impression that he put himself forward all the time. Is that true, you know, Richard? Yeah, I would agree, yeah. He lived a quiet he, he life. Relied, he relied on strong-willed partners. Noble Sissel was the first, and his two wives were quite incredible, particularly his second wife, who had been a secretary to W.C. Handy, who I'm, you might know who he was. He was a notable composer and publisher. And uh, one of the other big pluses in, in, for us as biographers was they saved everything. Um, so that uh, in his papers, which are now at the Maryland Historical Society in Baltimore, because QB was from Baltimore, um, there are contracts going back to the turn of the century. There are royalty statements. I mean, how many artists can you say recorded in 1917 and you can see what they earned? It's just mind-boggling. And we found their Vitaphone contract for the one lost Vitaphone film they made. So it really was that and Yubi's phenomenal memory. And as Ken said, Yubi's openness to share his experience. He was, you know, very realistic in his assessment of the challenges that African-American performers faced, but he wasn't bitter. And so that also, like many comparable figures, like if you, I don't know if you're familiar with people like Willie the Lion Smith, they were known as braggarts. <laughs> I mean, their, their interviews were very unreliable because they were always the star, you know. They, they, Kelly Roll Morton said he invented jazz. Yeah. All these guys were self-promotional. Yeah, know? Harry Bradford, who of course pr produced Crazy Blues, the first big hit 
record by an African-American, which is being celebrated this year as its 100th anniversary. So um, UB, UB was unusual in that way. He was very giving. So in the book, you say a few times, UB said this, but it's more likely that it actually was this. What was it that led you to say that about certain facts? Well, the major, the, there were a couple of things that were odd that we discovered in researching him. One was discovered actually by a previous researcher was that he had changed his birth year um, and uh, by about three, three, four years. In other words, he made himself four years older. And we get in the book, we kind of discuss some reasons that that might be the case. Um, it's an odd number, right? If you're going to make yourself older, why would you make yourself four years older? Um, but he did. Uh, and there is correspondence where, which actually, where he gets his birth certificate. So he knows that he's changed his birth year. So for example, he was determined to live to a hundred, which he did, except he was only 96. He was 100 based on his changed birth year, but of course it raises the whole question, how would you know in advance that you're going to die at 96, so you need to add four years? I mean, Ken and I are trying to work that out, even as... Right, being almost 100 ourselves. Yes, exactly. Or that way anyway. Yes. <laughs> so there were things like that, but you know, oral history, I don't know, again, if you've ever listened to interviews with people, it's not unusual for people to confuse the dates of things happening or the decade. It's, it's really quite common. The one other thing UB did, which a number of other, we mentioned this in the book, that a number of other pianists did, the most famous early rag was Maple Leaf Rag by Scott Joplin. It was published in 1899. So everybody wanted to say, well, Scott Joplin published it. I wrote something in 1899. Now, UB would have only been 13 at the time, so, you know, we have some, and the piece he claims that he wrote in 1899 wasn't actually written down or published till 1917. So, you know, it, it may be that he was playing a version of that piece earlier, I think he was, because it wasn't common for that kind of music to be written down anyway, but... I don't think he, he wrote it in 1899. And there, um, Lukey Roberts, who was his contemporary, also claims to have written a piece in 1899. It's kind of like, you know, if you hear stories about Henry Ford, well, he had the automobile, but we had something before him. You know, everyone wants the claim to be first, right. you know. So in researching the book, what were some of the, were there some particular interviews with UB that you found the most helpful? Well, you know, uh, William Bolcombe and Robert Kimball wrote a very famous book called Reminiscing with Sissel and Blake. They were both alive at the time. And that's what really gave Yubi a push, sort of, to be back in the consciousness of people in America. And the book was a big success. And they did a lot of interviews with him. And we, he did a lot of interviews. Did hundreds. Many of them were the same people asking the same kind of questions and all that. But he was very anxious to set the record straight, to talk about himself. Uh, there was uh, a really wonderful interview. Well, there were two, Vivian Perlis, who did a series of interviews with American composers, very detailed interviews. Uh, 
Eileen Southern, who was an African-American scholar, also did a very detailed interview. And then Mike Lipscomb and Rudy Blesch. Rudy Blesch first met UB around 1950 and was really key in bringing him into the ragtime revival. So I would say those were probably the most useful or most detailed because they really got down to the nitty gritty. One thing I noticed that I thought was interesting was Eileen Southern was African-American, and when he was interviewed by an African-American, he tended to talk much more about racism and the problems that black performers, not surprisingly, but still, um, maybe he was more comfortable in those settings talking about that. Maybe white interviewers didn't ask him as much about that. Um, but um, uh, there was another interview by Ian Whitcomb that was quite interesting because uh, in that interview, Ian Whitcomb said, how did you feel about racial stereotyping in music? And he mentioned Ernest Hogan's a song, All Look Alike to Me, which was a tremendous hit. And Yubi was defended Hogan. Hogan was a very educated man, just and he knew what he was doing in playing into that stereotype. So it's kind of a unique take on that. But Whitcomb seemed a little bit disturbed by that response as a white interview, white British interviewer. Um, but nonetheless, that was Yubi's attitude towards that. So Yubi's dad had a very interesting view on race and Yubi expressed, as you were saying, another one in later interviews. So describe them both. Well, Yubi's dad, who, you know, was a, uh, I don't know, a, a worker who came from out of slavery. And he, he had a different attitude about white people and the role of black people. But he instilled in Yubi uh, a moral center, I think. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't you say, Richard? Yeah. You know, yeah. and you and you know, Yubi started playing the piano in these body houses, and of course, it's, he was doing it secretly. He was, you know, going out the window in his bedroom and playing, and then coming back in. You know, and his parents didn't know. And then one day, a woman said to Yubi's mother, "Hey, I heard just from hearing the way Yubi was playing, she heard through a window and said, oh." Yubi's playing, and his parents were upset, but he was bringing home a lot of money. So they accepted it because they needed the money. Well, and Yubi's they realized. Yeah, Yubi's father did. I'm sorry to interrupt. He was accepting of it and recognized both the financial, but also was kind of proud of Yubi's artistic talents. Yubi's mother was a church going woman and very strict. And one of the subtexts of his life was he never could win her love. Even after he became a big hit and she went to see Shuffle Along in Baltimore and he arranged for her to be in a special box and everyone stood up and applauded for her. Uh, you know, when she came backstage with her friends, which you be called the church ladies, uh, that one of the ladies said, you must be very proud of your son. And she said, no, because he could have been making music for Jesus, you know. So she was a, she was a tough character. And so I think Yubi got a balance of influences in his life um, uh, from his, you know, more, more open father. And, but he also had a very strong moral sense. And I think his mother was 
even though he was aggravated by her. Uh, I think she played a major role as well. And he supported her, um, you know, in her later life, because his father uh, was considerably older than her and died, you know, well before she did. So one thing that Yubi said later in his life was that blacks are like clams in a jar. When one climbs up, another one pulls them down. And what in talking about his partner, Noble Sissel, in the book, you said that Sissel was able to achieve a sort of entree into white society that UB never could. And Sissel also later in the book dismissed people from Shuffle Along auditions for being too dark. So do you think both of them had sort of a mixed attitude toward their own race? Well, it's complicated. <laughs> I think it's, you know, race is very complicated. And of course, there's there is within the black community at that time, and even today, there's a certain hierarchy based on skin color, you know, and it's controversial to talk about, but uh, certainly in terms of the theater, lighter skinned women were more acceptable on stage than darker skinned ones. And it was, they were kind of, it, it's kind of interesting because it's layers of racism, right? Because they, they just being black was enough to keep you off the stage a long time. But then if you wanted to get on stage, you know, there were certain, there was uh, this inherent racism and Sissel was much more uh, class conscious than you. I think what's interesting. Educated. Uh, he went to college. Right. And he, he was, ran, he was, he went to an all white college. And he was raised in the middle, his father was a minister. And so he went to an all white high school. He was like the only, they have pictures in that book by um, reminiscing book uh, of him, you know, with the football team. And he's the only but he, black. But he was on accepted the team. at the college, which was really amazing yeah. at the time. And that had to do yes. with him and his attitude. Because, yeah, you know, well, it, he was comfortable, quote unquote, with white people. Uh, uh, in a way, UB wasn't. UB experienced a lot more racism when he was walking to school. The white kids threw rocks at him, and we tell that story in the book of how his father tells him, you know, you can't hate all white people just because these particular white people are racist. Um, so it's a comp, it's race is very complicated. And one of the things Ken and I were conscious of in writing this is we're two white guys, right? And so we tried very hard to acknowledge these challenges. At the same time, we never can, you know, we can't understand it at that same visceral level that Yubi um, did. And Yubi, when he, the crabs in the barrel quote, which I think is a wonderful quote, it's something Susan Jason told me. I don't, it was not in a formal interview. Uh, Dave and Dave Jason's a wonderful ragtime pianist who befriended UB and Susan, uh, his wife, had had invited him to dinner when he made that comment. But we talk about in the book how in the '40s, when black people like Duke Ellington had a certain level of success, or Count Basie, UB found it frustrating that they would cover the white hit songs, but they didn't support black composers at least in his estimation. And, and he felt like black, black musicians competed with each other rather than helping each other out. 
and supporting each other. And, and he tried it in various ways. As Ken said, he was remarkably egoless in that way, unlike a lot of other musicians who just like, were obviously, they're having enough trouble promoting their own careers. So I think that's what that quote was about. It wasn't so much a general comment about black people, but more his frustration that in the music business, um, they, they, there were blacks who achieved success, but didn't then take that to the next level and support other com com composers. And you know, you have to remember that uh, Shuffle Along was, uh, had the 10th longest run of, of the 20s, the 1920s, including shows like Showboat. It, you know, it had a very long run. It was a tremendous success. It toured for years in various forms. Mm -hmm. And after Shuffle Along, Yubi was asked to contribute songs to one show, Elsie, which was a white show. And it was not very successful. But when, uh, as the years went by, no one went to him, even though he was so successful. Had a smash hit song with I'm Just Wild About Harry. He was not offered jobs by white producers. Never was right. in Hollywood. He, he partnered with a white lyricist uh, for a show, and they had a major hit with the show. Um, it was uh, in the late 20s. And the white lyricist was immediately hired by Hollywood, but Yubi wasn't. Right. And, and um, you know, so there there was a lot of racism. There's no other way to think yeah. about it. Think about Fats Waller. He had the same thing happen to him. He was a, a more famous composer than Yubi, and he never was asked to go to Hollywood right. to write songs. Yeah. And I think also the other thing that was frustrating, I mean, it's really interesting. It was kind of a damned if you're successful, damned if you're not. Because Shuffle Along was such a big success, it inspired all these imitations. And every imitation, it came, within a year, critics were saying, well, you know, the novelty is worn off. You know, it's kind of like, we can tolerate one hit black show, but, you know, we're, we're, not, we're ready to move on to the next thing. They were never viewed as, like when you had a hit with Showboat or you had a hit with um, other white shows, the next thing they wanted to do was more shows by those composers. They didn't say, gee, we're tired of George Gershwin. Right, or, or shows that. about the South, you know, like Sunny River or anything, you know. Just yeah. like now, you have a hit show like Ain't Misbehavin' that comes out of the blue. And then everybody wants to do composer retrospective shows. Out. Uh, the black shows, I think, Blackbirds of 1928 was nearing the end of the line for successful black shows, wouldn't you say? Yeah, you? I mean, basically, the Cecil and Blake's follow-up was not successful. Miller and Lyles went out on their own and did a series of shows. Each one became less successful than the one before. And you can find, you can say, hey, they didn't, you know, really create new material or they didn't really i mean cecil and blake in their follow-up show chocolate dandies really tried to create a white quote-unquote show i mean they they their goal was to have a show that in every way would equal um and, and these were big shows they weren't yeah. small shows they had big yeah. cast they had a 
hundred people in the cast, and that was part of its downfall. It was so expensive to mount. But be that as it may, when they mounted that, Broadway people, the critics were like, well, that's not black enough. But if they had stuck to what they did, they get criticized for just doing black material, you know? It, it's just, uh, it's astounding when you read some of these reviews. I mean, uh, um, you probably read in the book, there was one reviewer who talked about the white producer from one of the black shows, and he kept referring to him as old massa wins, old massa wins, or saying talented white people, um, like Lou Leslie, who produced Blackbirds of 1928 and further shows, um, black performers needed someone like him to control them, to make sure the material wasn't too racy, wasn't too whatever, you know, disturbing to a white audience. And it's really, this wasn't that long ago. It's kind of amazing to to see this so baldly stated. I guess nowadays we're, we, we, we're used to hearing every day crazy assertions, but at that time, I, it surprised me how just out front it was. So you talk a lot about following up with Miller and Lyles and Sissel and obviously Blake after Shuffle Along. Would you argue that, except maybe in Blake's last decade of life, none of them ever achieved the same success again? Well, it, it's, I mean, with Miller and Lyles, Lyles died tragically young, so it's hard to say. And their style of comedy came out of minstrel and vaudeville traditions that became outdated. So, it, although there were, certainly were black comedic artists who carried that forward and worked with it and renewed it in different ways, um, but... The frustration, of course, for Miller and Lyles was the biggest hit duo that copied their act was Amos and Andy on the radio. And ironically, Miller ended up writing for Amos and Andy because basically it was the Miller and Lyles act. So M Miller and Lyles were invited to be on the radio to, once Amos and Andy were successful and and they couldn't compete. I mean, so it, it's kind of, it's a bizarre story. It's a typical story of how African-American creativity is co-opted by the mainstream uh, entertainment world. I hate to say that, you know, Yubi certainly was very successful in the last decade of his life, and he was a great performer throughout his life. Some of that has to do with fashion and timing. It's a little, it's a little bit, uh, and and Cecil, by the way, in the 40s, was known as the mayor of Harlem. He was a highly respected figure. He discovered Lena Horne. So, I, you know, they weren't commercially successful, maybe, in the same way. But they certainly were big influences, wouldn't you say, Ken? Oh, yeah. And, and they continued working and getting shows on, whether it was for the WPA or for the Army. You know, they, and they kept trying. They never... Stop trying. Right. We, you know, Richard and I did the CD of Shuffle Along, and we also did a follow-up CD of a Shuffle Along of 1950, that they, a prospective show. They were still on it 40 years, uh, what, 30 well, yeah. years later. And, and it, it went on, sort of, in 1952, but they kept plugging at it. They, they weren't uh, discouraged. 
they never gave up. Yeah, and CISL virtually integrated the USO because CISL knew one of the, the light vaudeville bookers who was hired by the uh, USO was sort of semi-private. It wasn't exactly part of the government, but it was formed to entertain the troops in World War II. And Cecil immediately saw the opportunity, and not only that, shamed the guy. He basically wrote to him and said, how can you have a USO with no black entertainers? And so he ended up being hired to be the conduit and therefore uh, facilitated uh, an abbreviated shuffle along that toured during World War II. So, um, and yeah. Li yeah, likewise, they had a real sense of making blacks equal to whites. Mm -hmm. uh, all the way back to Shuffle Along, where they insisted in Baltimore when they played a theater that was segregated, they insisted that black people could also be in the orchestra section. Right. Not necessarily sitting next to white people, but in the orchestra section and not relegated to the second balcony right. or the gods, as they call it. So they stood up for themselves. Yeah, they really did. They never appeared in blackface. In Shuffle Along, the only characters in blackface were um, Miller and Lyles, and that was a comedic... That was because they were the comedians in the show. It was to indicate it was almost like a, an accepted to them because it was, you know, they were comic characters. Whereas Shuffle Along had a romance between a male and female lead, which was unheard of at the time. And um, it had a variety of types, right? Politicians and business owners. And, you know, so it really tried to represent black life much more fully than it had ever been represented before on the stage to the fact where, you know, Yubi uh, tells a story of on opening night that they're so afraid that when the black man sings a love ballad to his white, to his, <laughs> sorry, to his sweetheart, he, um, they were afraid the audience was going to just rise up and, and riot, you know, and the fact that they didn't was this amazing, it just was incredible to these, to these um, entertainers. And, you know, it's interesting too, because even later, when Porgy and Bess was touring, the National Theater in Washington was still segregated. Sure. And Todd Duncan had to say, we're not playing any theater that wasn't segregated. And that was 20-something years after Shuffle Long. So they and laid the Shuffle ground. Along played, Shuffle Along played white theaters when it toured, which was highly unusual. And, and Cecil and Blake on vaudeville played white vaudeville, which, again, there's a story in the book that their, their manager, Pat Casey, when he's first promoting them, he says, no, no, these guys don't wear blackface and they don't appear in overalls. This is Cecil and Blake. They're serious musicians. And that was just, again, highly unusual. Right. They would wear tuxedos. Yep. And, and didn't have any of the black tropes of the time. They were smart and sophisticated performers. And that's how they presented themselves. So going back to what you were saying earlier about the many attempts to sort of revive and reform Shuffle Along, one thing that really stood out to me in your book was not just the fact that they were different actors, but very different kinds of acts. 
So what is the plot of Shuffle Along and how did they manage to sort of squeeze all those different types of? Well, Shuffle Along is sort of a pre-book show. I guess Ken can speak to this. Yeah, it, uh, it had, you know, like all those review, all those shows had review elements where someone would do a turn by some, you know, doing some sort of act or some skill or some character they had that they could shine for a moment. You know, so Shuffle Along gave opportunities for that. But like Richard said, it had a serious plot, uh, you know, about this town and, and an election, and there was a bad guy and a good guy, and, you know. Uh, but that was also the same in White shows. And Eddie Cantor's shows, he played the same character in every show, and every show had a chance for him to do his turn, whatever right. it was. And he was basically the same character. And, you know, you look back at all these people, so they weren't any different. Yeah, the second act, there was a part of the show labeled, and now, a few minutes with Cecil and Blake, and they would come yeah, out and the do their show would stop. And, and Miller and Lyles had a very famous boxing routine that, uh, uh, that again, it, it was just dropped into the show. <laughs> so... Of course, as the years went on, two things happened. One, as vaudeville was in decline, they, they did these shows more and more in between film showings. So they did these truncated versions. Yeah, tab shows. Tab, called tab shows. Yeah. And, and those were much more like, you know, whoever was available, well, this guy does his act and that guy does that act. And after a while, the name Shuffle Along really became... It was their point of entry. It was their most famous thing. Yeah. So it's it's not that they exactly did, um, you know, shuffle along per se uh, for the many decades. And uh, and of course, the big problem with trying to revive it is elements of the book uh, that you know, and the comedy that you just isn't can't be done today and it really didn't have a fixed form the book itself wasn't written down until after the show was a success because they needed to copyright something so the book may not even and probably doesn't represent any particular performance of the show right the book was built upon miller and lyle's act that they were doing in chicago at the pekin theater and then the show was built around this one sketch that they did for as an act, you know, right. and um, so every so it wasn't constructed in the way most Broadway musicals were constructed at the time. Even though most Broadway musicals were very loose, except for the operettas, which were really tight and more serious in nature. Right, like Nina Rosa and Rosemary. And talk with Andy's their follow-up show. I mean, both Cecil and Blake were tremendous operetta fans, and so. Um, you know, they had a piece called Gypsy Blues, which was based on a Victor Herbert piece. I mean, Yubi loved Victor Herbert. Even late in life, he said he he preferred playing Victor Herbert to ragtime in some in some in some ways as a personal choice. So so when they did a more elaborate quote unquote book show, uh, they were kind of punished for it. Not enough dancing, not enough singing, you know, not enough leggy girls. And remember, Showboat was seven years later. So, you know, the, the white musical comedy had a way to go also. 
I would be curious to know what you both thought of the recent Shuffle Along show, which was not just the show, but in terms of quality, accuracy. I didn't see it. I saw it. Um, again, there's this considerable challenge. I mean, they did not bill it as Shuffle Along. They sort of semi did, but they also, they kind of said, you know, Shuffle Along, and then it had a long subtitle that kind of explained that it was an interpretation. Uh, they kind of, I mean, I thought the first half was actually pretty, pretty good and pretty accurate, but the second half got, it. they kind of threw in everything but the kitchen sink. Um, it was a little bit, some people were disturbed by the fact that there were songs thrown in there that, First of all, the program had no credits for the incidental music, and the incidental music was not by Cecil and Blake. And that, you know, when you're doing a musical show, people are sensitive about that. Other people were sensitive that other songs by UB, uh, particularly Memories of You, which was his big hit with Andy Razef, was thrown in there, but they didn't credit Andy Razef or even acknowledge that it wasn't part of Shuffle Along, you know. I'm not a purist, so that. You know, I can understand why they would want to pull up his biggest hit song and put it in there. I just thought that it wasn't shuffle along. It was the it was an interpretation of the history of how shuffle along happened. It's an impossible show to do because it doesn't really. It, it's it's almost like trying to do a nineteenth-century ballet where there's no record of the choreography. There's no there's no real, um, the style it was done in is totally different. For example, they used Saving Glover and they had all tap dance numbers, but there wasn't tap dancing in Shuffle Along at all. You know, it was known for its chorus line. And, and, and so again, it, it kind of depended on where you're coming from. I, I think it might have served people who didn't know anything about Shuffle Along, uh, but it was, it was hard for people that had had some knowledge of it because of all the the way it was put together. And if you're going to do a show where you're trying to tell the history, you would think the program would be meticulous in giving the history of the songs and acknowledging where the stuff came from, uh, which it wasn't. So as you were saying, Shuffle Along was a very long time ago and there's not a great record of it. UB died not so long ago comparatively, but a pretty long time ago. So in writing this book, what first-hand sources, like what interviews with living people did you do? Well, we interviewed people who, um, Mike Lipskin and, you know, uh, people who were, men who were mentored by UB who were still around. And we taught William Bolcom and Joan Morris and Bob Kimball and his wife. They all came over to my apartment and Richard and I talked to them because they knew UB also. So that was as firsthand as we could get. There was no one else from those years, I don't think, who was really around. Well, there were, there were recorded. There, luckily, yeah. as we said, UB was amply interviewed later in life. There were earlier written interviews and recorded interviews with people who played with him over the years. I interviewed the daughter of one of the lyricists, Milton Reddy, who worked with UB on the WPA show, Swing It. Uh, Milton Reddy, a wonderful lyricist, uh, um, in some ways, 
more contemporary and and more talented than than Sissel, um, but totally forgotten today. Um, but it, you know, these things are fraught with problems. It took a long time to find her, and then it turned out she was estranged from her father. So, you know, you're writing an outside history, but you have to be sensitive to the fact that these are people who lived that history, and they're not always, uh, it's not always a happy story to them. So, um, but we did our best to certainly uh, find, and, and again, the other thing that was amazing was in the papers and the archives, there was tons of correspondence. And so that gave you a lot of insight into his relationship with um, various people he worked with, even an incredible letter from uh, the teens where one of his friends, Louis Mitchell, who had a jazz band in France, wrote UB and said, come on over to France. There's no, there's no prejudice here and there's lots of work. And we make the same money. We make more money than white musicians. And just, just to have access to that kind of thing, yeah. Um, unbelievable. So speaking of Milton Reddy, as we were, it seems that later in life, UB's sort of lack of a go-get-em attitude cost him that partnership as well as the one with Ernie Ford. Do you think it also cost him in a broader sense? Well, I mean, UB told the story of himself that, you know, Sissel was a go-getter. Sissel went and went to Sophie Tucker and said, hey, we've got this song, and convinced her to perform it, whereas he never would have done that. He said, I'm the kind of guy that if you don't like my music, you can, you know, I don't want anything to do with you, whereas Sissel really did promote. Milton Reddy also, I mean, they, they, they did a lot to promote themselves. I think one thing to, make, to survive, you be later in the 40s and 50s, basically wrote songs to order, that he, he had certain... Uh, amateur lyricist, and we talk about Grace Beret, who we know very little about, and Ernie Ford, who was a newspaper man in Houston, and somehow found Yubi. Um, and a number of black composers did this. And Ernie Ford wrote with other black composers, but basically, it was uh, was the way of supporting himself. So basically, he was hired to set these songs. So um, now he was not as big a self-promoter as Sissel and but ironically he became you know very few people remember Sissel today and um UB is still well loved and remembered so I mean he was a master performer and that that uh and his he adapted his performance style Sissel kind of if you've seen films of him or heard him sing he sounds a little bit like uh, uh, a, a vaudeville shouter of the 20s, right? Ken, like an Al Jolson or, uh, you know, he doesn't sound like a quote-unquote black singer. He sounds like the white, sing popular white singers of that period. And he always did. When, you, when he was recorded in the 60s, he sounded the same. He was still doing that same style of singing, which, you know, needless to say, had been superseded. And, you know, Yubi kept trying to improve himself the whole time. And right. never stopped writing, learning, whereas right. Sissel basically stopped. And you and you um, was just he he was he was uh, sensitive to his audience. He knew how to play the audience. You listen to his live performances, and he's just a great entertainer. I mean, he charmed Johnny Carson. He was on the Tonight Show several times, and Johnny Carson 
loved him because he he was he knew how to work uh, the people he worked with, and um, I don't think Noble. Ironically, I don't think even though Noble was very celebrated as a performer in the twenties, I, I don't he his act had really aged. Yeah. And you don't think of Noble Sissel as a personality? No. You know, he did his job, he was steadfast, he was rock solid, but Yubi was really funny. And he could really project an image for himself and bring people in. And that's why they loved him. They, he didn't even have to play the piano. They yeah. liked him just when he was talking and reminiscing. He was so lively. And he wasn't always talking about himself. Again, he could make fun of himself. Yeah. So that... That helped a lot in his rediscovery so because he was his own person. He wasn't, he was, in his rediscovery, he wasn't talking about Shuffle Along. He no, was talking about the present and yeah. things he had just written or people or whatever, you know. He was always living in the present and not looking back. So you were talking about films and recordings of Cecil and Blake. What do you feel are some of the most successful ones of them? Well, he did, later on, he did a recording for Columbia, the 88 years of U.B. Blake. 86. 86 years, I'm sorry. I think about the piano is 88, which is what they should have waited two years. And he was but, only uh, 82. <laughs> he was only 82 at the time. Oh, uh, well, be that as it may. And that, that was a, a, a very successful yeah. album for Columbia. Yeah, reviewed in Rolling Stone. I mean, it really relaunched his career and... Uh, and was a real landmark recording. The Ragtime Revival started slightly later than that. That album came out in 1969, and then a year later, a classical arranger pianist named Josh Rifkin put out an album of uh, Scott Joplin's Rags. And then, of course, The Sting came out, uh, which featured Marvin Hamlish's orchestrations of Scott Joplin Rags. And that really, um, the ragtime revival boom. So he he was it was a little bit of being in the right place at the right time. Um, there is an early sound film. There was a man named Lee DeForest who tried to create a, a different sound film from the uh, Vitaphone method. wasn't successful, but he did film. Luckily, thankfully, he filmed Cecil and Blake, uh, and you get a real sense of what their vaudeville act was like. And they were also they recorded it extensively in the in the 20s um but really uv's fame is based on the 86 years and and the performances he made later in life so before we talk about that era i have a little music clip to share which is a pianist named alex burilski playing one of uv's biggest hits i think his biggest hit i'm just wild about harry so here it is Comments from either of you on this song? 
Well, it's an interesting song because it was written originally as a waltz. And the original um, lead in the show, Lottie G, uh, said to UB, we can't, I'm not going to sing a waltz song. We have to have something upbeat. And UB was very upset. He thought it was a beautiful waltz. Um, but Cecil agreed, and so he reset it as, uh, I guess, what you would consider a two-step, the popular dance rhythm of that day. But as we were saying, it, it sold well in sheet music, well enough to have a separate sheet printed. Most of the show's songs were printed with a generic cover um, of a, showing a chorus line. Uh, but Harry was issued with a special cover, but it wasn't recorded. Ken, can you think of recordings from the 20s? I can't. Oh. It really wasn't recorded at the time. And it wasn't until Harry Truman adapted it as his campaign song that it became a major hit. And uh, thankfully, because really for both Cecil and Blake, that and for you be the song Memories of You, which became a major hit for Benny Goodman in the 50s, the royalties from those two songs were, were important lifelines to them. Um, the other thing that's kind of interesting, uh, and Ken probably could speak to this in more detail, is that, you know, there's this expression, a trunk song, where people rework earlier songs that weren't successful. Sissel actually had an, uh, one of the first songs they wrote was called My Loving Baby, and it had a chorus, I'm just wild about baby and baby's just wild about me. And so Sissel obviously took his own lyric. It's not the same melody, but Sissel, you know, probably in a pinch to come up with a new song, uh, borrowed his own earlier lyric. So that, that's kind of been uh, a fun. Sissel wasn't the most inventive lyricist. No. No one's going to look at a Sissel lyric and go, oh, the turn of phrase or the joke no. or... The underlying no, staff, of course, is famously yeah. clever. And um, and uh, his song, You're Lucky to Me, there's a there's a we tell the anecdote in the book about how the publisher thought it was unlucky to publish a song that had 13 in it. And Razzat right. wrote a long letter defending that. Uh, and Milton Reddy was a very clever lyricist um, who, as I said, deserves to be better known. But in terms of the music you played, I think UB would have embraced it because UB kept evolving as a pianist. Oh, yeah. And like yeah. we said about the Schillinger method and other things, and he was open to all this stuff. He wasn't like Irving Berlin, where you had to play the song the way it was written. No, UB was... UB, that was the other thing about UB that was really impressive to me as a musician was he had such a good ear that he could sit at the piano and say, now listen to this little figure. It was played by one leg Willie Joseph in 1903. And I learned it, but then I took it and I did this to it. And he, and Bill Balcom told the similar story where he kind of said to him, you know, you can learn my stuff, but don't play it like me. Learn, learn, you can learn these tricks or you can learn these turns of phrase, but make them into something that's personal to you. And, right. and that's really, if you know about music, that's what really sets apart a master musician is that you can, just like Ken was saying, the ladies from the church heard you, somebody and they're saying, gee, it's midnight and we're hearing this music, sounds like you be playing. 
he had something he called the wobble bass, which was kind of an off-kilter, slightly syncopated approach to kind of an, I don't know if you call it a boogie-woogie bass, but it was, it was unique to him. And, and UB always sounded like UB, whereas you're saying Sissel sounded like Al Jolson. Right. And later on, you know, when he had his resurgence and he would play the piano, he would do variations on his songs as if someone else did it or, you know, another classical person or just do different variations and fool around with it. So yeah. he had fun with it because it had, a, it had a bass and he could change it and whatever, but that bass, that strength of the song was always the underlying thing for whatever he played. And he could go off on any tangent and it was still that song. Yeah. He was really astoundingly uh, clever and talented about this music. Yeah, I, I, uh, just a little quick anecdote. I heard him play in Princeton. He was invited in 1972 to a harpsichord festival, of all things. And I was a kid, and I went and heard him. And it was amazing to hear him play the harpsichord because it's a shorter keyboard, and every now and then he would go off the end, which was kind of funny, and he kind of laughed. But he always sounded like Yubi. They're just, you know, and that's the kind of, you think of a musician like a Stefan Grappelli, or you think of a great singer like a Peggy Lee, they always sound like themselves, uh, no matter what, they can sing the Star Spangled Banner, but it's, there's never any question about their identity. And that, that's something that I think also is unique and unusual and uh, kind of like lightning in a bottle. Yeah, if you think of memories of you and songs written way earlier and shuffle along, they each have that UB sound. Yeah. Just the same as Gershwin had the same sound and Berlin and Rogers and all that. So yeah. he had his sound, but like the others, it was very flexible. He could write any kind of music and still be himself. Just like yeah. an actor can do Shakespeare and do Neil Simon and still be themselves, even though the underlying work is completely different. Yeah. So now let's talk about a less glamorous aspect of UB, which was his wandering eye. So he had this problem and yet both of his wives he stayed no with him till they died. Why was that? Well, they did. I, I don't think it was a problem. <laughs> it wasn't a problem to Yubi. Well, yeah. I mean, part of it was like you know he grew up in this culture where, and he references this. He's very straightforward about it. Like you know, if you were on the stage, you know, it was almost like expected that um, <clears throat> you would have affairs with the various chorus girls. The thing that was kind of unusual about Yubi was that he had a, a long-running relationship with Lottie G, while at the same time he was still married to his first wife. Um, and she did object to it, or she, was, she knew about it. They both know, knew about each other. So not to get moral about it, uh, you know, I don't know that any, you can exactly explain it, but, but that, uh, you know, he relied on, he was very devoted to both of his wives, but his attitude towards having relationships with others, it was almost irrelevant. In other words, I don't think he viewed himself as cheating necessarily on his wives. Now, 
I think it was a little different with Lottie G because that really was a true deep relationship and in a way a very tragic one because after they broke up she had a significant breakdown and was never the same so um but that's that's kind of a darker story right but um but but certainly there's this famous footage of UB with a picture of the Coreens of Shuffle Along and he, he's pointing at each one and he was in his 90s then and he's going, I slept with that one, I slept with that one, I slept with that one. And, you know, and the famous quote he gave when supposedly he was in his mid-90s, when they, somebody asked him, when does the sex drive, you know, when does the male sex drive subside? And he said, you'd have to ask someone older than me. But, you know, part of that was shtick by that point well maybe not <laughs> but rem- and also remember in those eras you know it, it I, I won't mention who they are but a famous um songwriter composer he would sit in the audience during rehearsals one seat off of the aisle and it was expected that a chorus girl would go to him and sit next to him and something would happen mm-hmm. so it, People didn't take it as morally serious as that because they knew the difference between an emotional relationship and just a plain sexual romp. Well, you know, I mean, it was a different thing. Yeah, right? but I mean, there was definitely a power in oh, the yeah, sexual yeah, yeah. exploitation. But it was occurred, taken for granted then. It was but part it, of the business. Know, but, yeah, yeah. I mean, the sexual more. It's hard for us now to judge from our perspective now. And Yubi did sort of, he was, uh, I think I, in the book, we have a quote where he kind of says, yeah, I kind of did take advantage, particularly of Lottie G. He had some conscience of the fact that um, his behavior was less than exemplary. So you were talking about his breakup with Lottie G, which had sort of disastrous results, at least for her. One breakup of a different kind, not romantic, but professional, was Cecil and Blake, which seemed bitter to me but then they would just sort of go to work together again on another shuffle along revival so were they that easily able to forgive each other i think it was very bitter i think sissel felt sissel was always more comfortable in the sort of uh, urbane white world he wanted to stay in europe you hated being away from home he hated traveling um so and I do think Sissel kind of felt like he was the brains of the operation, which again is somewhat ironic uh, in retrospect. I, I think they kept working together, partially because UB was like, hey, if you'll work with me. <laughs> he was desperate for work uh, in the 30s during the Depression and later on. And also, Shuffle Along was their meal ticket. They kind of, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know, you can think of any contemporary duo the righteous brothers hated each other they the um you know sam and dave hated each other but there was a financial incentive for them to work together so uh i i don't i and i think particularly later on sissel kind of muscled his way into ub was signed to do a couple of ragtime records in the late 50s and lo and behold sissel shows up on them uh, you know so i think uh uh sissel was pushy and was anxious to keep himself in the picture. And Sissel didn't have the talent or drive that Yubi had. I mean, Yubi kept performing even in the depths of nothing happening and writing and all. 
Well, no. so, uh, I disagree, but Simple <laughs> yeah, had a big band. He was performing. He really That's didn't true. stop performing till the mid. Yeah, but, but I'm talking about in terms of theater. He didn't want to do. He wasn't pushing to write new shows or finding other people to no, collaborate. No, with. no, he wasn't. Yeah, for Broadway. Yeah. Whereas Yubi kept wanting to do these things, and that's why he had all these different lyricists. Right. Sissel didn't really hook up with other composers, did he? Yeah, he did. He did some songs with other composers. Some, but not like... No, no show, not any shows that I'm aware of, right. that's true. So one partnership I want to ask you two about is your own. How did you sort of split up the work? We hate each other. <laughs> it's all for the money. <laughs> right. Yes, the money. The, the money. money. The money and the fame. <laughs> well, we had written the liner notes for this Shuffle Along album that we put together from the original, in quotes, recordings of the time and, you know, after. And we wrote the liner notes, and then miraculously, we won a Grammy Award, and I can't remember who said, let's probably Richard, said, well, let's do a whole full biography. And Richard really took the lead in the biography. Yeah, I mean, I had worked with Ken for many decades as his editor, actually. I had acquired several books that Ken wrote and, and, and uh, really admired his deep knowledge of Broadway, and he brought a lot of that to the table for the book. But realistically when you're writing a book together somebody has to do an initial draft right that that and also i'm the kind of writer researcher that once the research is in my head it's like let me out <laughs> so i so i did do a lot of the initial drafting but ken brought to it a lot of knowledge he did a lot of the interviewing and research and we did some in interviewing yeah, you know, I, went, I feel like i've said this to you before charles I'm a forest guy, not a trees guy. So we have, Charles and I have friends who know, My Fair Lady opened on this date, right. and you know, so-and-so town, and I played this And But I can picture the overall arc of things and how they relate to each other. And that's one of the strengths of Richard and I bouncing off of each other. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Plus, yeah. I yeah. was doing other things at the same time that Richard was doing this because right. he had a steady job and I was like trying to make a buck, which didn't work out so well. Yeah. But anyway, uh, no, but seriously, you know, so Richard really took the, uh, took the lead. I did research and all, but he really gave the, I don't know, the skeleton of the piece, sort of, and I filled in blanks, I'd say. Is that fair? Well, I think I, I really feel like the, the, the best part of it is that we're still friends and we came out the other end of it. And I think oh, yeah. the book is much stronger. I couldn't have written this book by myself. I mean, I could have written a book, but I right. certainly could not have written this book. Yeah, same with me. Yeah. So we were a good team. I, you know, I'm used to collaborating, coming from a theater background. And that's what I really like is collaboration. Right. My background was as an editor working with authors to improve their work. Right. So I was used to that aspect of it. Right. You know? And Richard has a good sense of flow in the book, and, you know, and the structure of the book much more than I had. And I think the book is just so brilliantly written. And to all the listeners, if you haven't already, you should definitely read it and buy it. 
And one but, of my... You know, that part was me, the brilliance part, not Richard, just to be clear. <laughs> and one of my favorite turns of phrase that you use in the book is when you say, Yubi Blake was a living, breathing symbol of Ragtime's vitality during his resurgence. And one of the things to come of his resurgence was the musical Yubi. So tell us about sort of the saga of creating that. Wow. Well, I interviewed uh, Julianne Boyd, who put it together, and it was a crazy ride because Ashton Springer was the producer and... Uh, he was a black, one of the only black producers on Broadway at the time, and somewhat of a crook. And uh, it, it was Rocky Road, and it, it was a good show, but it also suffered from being compared to other shows of its ilk, like Game Misbehaving and, you know, uh, other shows like that. And, um, but I think the show was good, except Ashton Springer was spending the money uh, in other ways, and uh, he's not alive now, so I can say that I knew people who worked with him. He was working with George Faison, who's the great black choreographer, who's fantastic, on a show. And George said to a friend of mine who was the musical director, uh, this show's probably not gonna get on because Ashton is really laundering money through the theater for the black mafia. So his shows, we're built to lose money, in a sense, which is sort of weird. Well, I mean, and really, it's kind of a sad echo of earlier shows you'd be worked on. He'd be hired by someone like a Lou Leslie. The show would fail. Leslie would just incorporate under a new name. So, okay, Blackbirds of 1930 is bankrupt. And Yubi had been promised a regular salary, plus payment for his music. And he kept ledgers, and you can see he was supposed to get 150 he would get $60. And when that show ended, he was owed a great deal of money. Um, and he couldn't, he went to ASCAP, and ASCAP said, well, you know, there is no Blackbirds of 1930 anymore. There's a Blackbirds of 1931. So Leslie could just reincorporate and stiff everybody. And this was a, uh, and for Black, composers, you know, the great white composers, right, their publishers were put on retainers and would get advances. Yubi would get like a dollar advance on a song if right. he got anything. And in this case, luckily, towards the end of his life, he had this lawyer who was kind of a character in and of himself. He rode around on a little scooter around Manhattan. He also represented Cindy Lauper, and he was quite a character. Um, his name was Elliot Hoffman. And Hoffman was just like incensed over this entire, he, he smelled trouble uh, with the producer. Uh, but again, it's a tightrope. Like you want to keep the show going so you have a chance of getting some of your money, but you don't want to, you know, be stiffed. And it wasn't unusual in the 20s for, I mean, literally, if the show failed, the actors were just left, you know, they had to figure out how to get home. There was no, there was no provision made. So um, that's one of the sadly recurring themes of the book that, that, that particularly black reformers who didn't have the same uh, ability to protect themselves, didn't have good legal representation, um, were taken advantage of. And it's kind of a sad story. Um, but 
flip side is UB really, he went around to all the very, when, when the show was touring, he would go to the various cities where it played. He got a lot of attention. The show launched the career of the Heinz brothers, um, who really uh, were unknowns when it opened. And, um, and it was a good show. And it was a good show. And it was a good show. And uh, Julianne did a really good job with it. Yeah. And, it, and one thing she did do was she went, you, again, because Yubi was a pack rat, he had all these unpublished songs that had never been heard, like I'm a Great Big Baby or this, um, you know, and sh they went down there and he played all the songs and recommended it and they chose a lot of songs that had never been published or copyrighted. Um, and that was really, I mean, there are still, if you go down to the Historical Society, there's several hundred unpublished songs for various shows that never happened, as well as individual songs. And somebody with a lot of time on their hands should really, uh, I bet there are a lot of undiscovered gems there. So I want to ask you to tell the very dramatic and theatrical, fittingly, story you tell in your book about Yubi's death. Oh, well, that was a story that was relayed to us by Terry Waldo, um, who was one of Yubi's students and uh, still a great ragtime pianist. And Terry told this story, well, First, Bill Balcom told us a wonderful story when he went to visit. UB basically was in very good health through his 90s till really the last year of his life. And, and sadly, his second wife passed away, and I think that was also a blow to him. She passed away about eight months, six, eight months before he died. And so uh, Balcom and his wife, Joan Morris, visited, and they, they kind of wheeled Yubi up to the piano from his bed and he kind of, he tried to play a little bit and he played on a clear day you can see forever because he admired the chord progression in that, which is another testimony to how he kept listening, right, throughout his life uh, um, to Broadway and other popular music. But then another friend of his visited him shortly before he died and he tells the story of, there's this common folk belief that when someone is dying, you, you help them make the passage from life to death by sort of holding their hand and talking to them through it and saying, can you see, you know, your relatives? Can you see heaven? And Yubi was like, yes, I can see. And um, it is a beautiful story. He made that made a sort of peaceful passage to the other side and was reunited with, uh, his parents. And the last question I want to ask you is, what is Yubi's legacy? Ken? <laughs> I, I don't, um, I'm hope, I, I think he has a legacy, yeah. but I don't think people know about it. So it's hard to have a legacy if it's not widely known. But well, if I, you think think I, I, I think there are a number of legacies. Well, I mean, the legacy is also what he gave to people like Terry Waldo, right. Mike Lipskin, Ian Whitcomb, and all those people. But, but I want to say that it, we met, shuffle along. It was the beginning of the Roaring Twenties, and yeah. if you think of Broadway at the time, it the Roaring Twenties didn't hit Broadway then. They, if you look at the timeline, you know the Gershwins just were starting out to make an impact, and maybe they 
you know, they overpowered, you know, UB's memory. But Shuffle Along, his legacy was really giving a jump start to jazz and ragtime and, and syncopation, I should say, to and Broadway. Dance. I mean, one of the, the stage a, in a theater that used to be a lecture hall. So the stage was very shallow. And they even removed some of the front row seats so that it could be a little deeper, but it was basically not a acting stage. So they, they, they came up with the idea of the chorus line, of having a line of women across the stage. And, and you know, that's an amazing legacy. There's no, no chorus line the musical without, without that. Um, I think also, frankly, there are a lot of stories in the books that just how he personally touched lives all around him. He was really a, a, a great mentor, not only musically, but personally to so many people. And I think, I think there are echoes of his music, the, the rhythms, certainly, but also he had a great harmonic ear that um, you still you can hear in popular song. And of course, the social, his history with the music industry, as I said, as mixed as it was, there are echoes of that, you know, Chuck Berry struggling with his copyrights. And, um, you know, nowadays, many African-American performers are much more sophisticated, but they learned through the hardships of these pioneers who, um, who weren't as lucky. And, and in many ways uh, were deprived of uh, income they should have had. Ken and Richard, I want to thank you so much for joining us today to talk about this great book. And listeners, one more reminder to buy the book and also buy the two CDs from Ken's record label, Harbinger Records. And another reminder to tune in again on Monday when we're joined by Tony nominee and Cats actor Stephen Mohan. Thank you again for listening.